Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 10 of the Bomber Brothers podcast. Sean and Ryan with you here, part of the Pinstripe Alley community of podcasts, and we have Ben Lindbergh from The Ringer as our guest this week. He's uh, the co-author of a new and awesome book, The MVP Machine, which delves into a bunch of different facets of player development and how individual players and certain franchises are uh, building winners from within internally, which uh, we've seen plenty of Yankees come up through the ranks and turn into studs like Aaron Judge, etc. Uh, but Sean, lately, obviously Judge still on the IL, but the rest of the Yankees that are left have not been performing the way they were in recent weeks. They've certainly started to stumble a little bit. Maybe some of that expected regression that seemed inevitable from some players, but more so just the starting rotation has been kind of in shambles lately, and that's had a lot to do with the Yankees' recent sputter. Well, yeah, I mean, you had a game where the bullpen, you know, well, I mean, you had two games where the bullpen just totally imploded, but uh, one of them they were able to win uh, that last game in Cleveland, but you had the one game in Toronto where the bullpen just completely imploded, and, you know, that was before we recorded last week, and since then, the rotation's been the big letdown, and that's what happens when you rely on an old CC Sabathia, who we love, and I, I think he's lined up to pitch the next game I go to. I'm really excited about that, but um, still, he, he's not a guy that you want to be relying on, and then you have Paxton, who got rushed back from a knee injury, still saying he was feeling pain when he came back, and he had one good start and two terrible ones since then, and Domingo Herman, who has been pitching very poorly, goes on the IL with the hip issue. Tanaka's been inconsistent, and that that's where we are. Yeah, and, and only there was Dallas a, cycles on yeah. on a, on another team because of what a three million dollar difference, uh, one and a Pro, half million, right? Because it's prorated, prorated over one year, uh, in absolutely insane and unacceptable on the Yankees' behalf. But you know, I guess the Steinbrenners want to save up for that trust fund or, or whatever they, they want to put that money in. Another yacht, uh, perhaps? Yeah, but the championships apparently are, are secondary because, look, I get it if you don't want to invest 10 years, 12 years, 13 years in a guy. I, I you, you can sell me on some of those excuses. But I don't get a one-year, not even a full one-year deal for a pitcher who could help you now. Now, here's something I find inter- interesting. Do you think if... Domingo Herman no. had not covered up that hip injury. Do you think the Yankees no. would have? No, no you, I, I'm so, inclined uh, to agree with you because so, it's the precious money that they don't want to part ways with. But I thought that was a, at least a possibility. That that is such an who wrote that article because that is just asinine. Like, why? First, all right. Are you really comparing where Dallas Keuchel is in his career right now to Domingo Herman, who's been just deteriorating anyway throughout the year? He's trying to get for, through his first major league season, and, and you're going to discount and, and say, oh, no, we, we'd bid more for Dallas Keuchel if we knew? Come on, that's just BS. Uh, I, I don't buy that for one second. They, they've been saying they need rotation help for a while now, and, and now we're in a position where either they're going to have to ship off more prospects to get a – um, red ass Madison Bumgarner, who <laughs> is deteriorating as a pitcher, although he has his postseason pedigree, or you're going to have to ship a bunch of prospects within the division to go get Stroman when you could have just given up a little bit extra money and gotten one of the best pitchers in the postseason against the Yankees in recent memory, who still for one year it, it would be a very good, uh, good pitcher. Um, 
so now they have to hope and pray that either they, they manage to swing off a good trade or that Severino and Montgomery both come back and are the, the pitchers that they were prior to their injuries. Yeah, well, Severino's been thrown from 60 feet, so it seems like he's at least on track to come back. Now Dylan Batances goes down because apparently everyone with shoulder problems on the Yankees needs to have an obligatory latch strain as well to go along with it, which is exactly what happened to Severino. So now that's at least at least three more weeks without Batances, which, you know, a lot of people have made a big deal about the Yankees' bullpen usage. It's actually, I was I was very surprised to find out that they've actually been middle of the pack in the league in terms of bullpen usage, and it's been spread out pretty evenly. So there's actually, actually really hasn't been a lot of bullpen arms that have been overused a lot. That, of course, could become more of a concern as the season goes along, and that's why a guy like Keuchel would have been nice because he theoretically could have been plugged into the rotation for the rest of the season and alleviated some of the concerns with guys like Sabathia, who, even when he's on, is really not trusted a third time through the order anymore. The numbers and the age mm-hmm. suggest that that's probably not the best idea. You, we have Tanaka, who goes through four starts looking like his 2014 self, and then four starts looking like, uh, I, I don't know, 2016? Well, first, first half 2017? First, yeah, first half 2017 self, and... Like you said, Herman, you know, I guess it's interesting to hear that the hip flexor is something he's dealt with since May when his trouble started, but I still think there was going to be some regression there. Even if he wasn't hurt, his home run to fly ball rate was seemed like he was getting very fortunate, and now he's been getting killed by home runs. You would assume there's some kind of happy medium in between there where he wouldn't be as bad when he comes back healthy, but not as good as he was to start the season. But still, I mean, this seems this seems like just a huge missed opportunity for the Yankees, who suddenly seem like they're way more okay with giving away prospects than money. I mean, they, they made the Sonny Gray trade in 2017, but pumped the brakes on a Verlander deal, which I, I think you can because argue cost. Yeah, which I think you can, you can argue cost them a World Series or two already. Well, I mean, if the Yankees have Verlander in the series against the Astros, they win that series. <laughs> and then the Astros don't have Verlander. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they, they win that series rather easily, I would suggest. But, um, yeah, I, you know, that's just something revisiting. It just, just bothers me. And, and I don't understand this new philosophy that it's just it's so frustrating. And, you know, we, we talked to Ben about how teams are, you know, with their player development. But there just comes a point where you have to go for it at the moment. Like you've done your player development, but there's still going to be holes because of injuries, or you know, like Severino and Montgomery, and there's 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 holes, and they need to be plugged. And you could have just thrown money at your hole, and it would have been been better. And thrown money at your hole, I like yeah, that. That's yeah, I don't know. That's what she <laughs> said. I, I don't know. That's just we we'll probably make some jokes out of that, but you know, we're trying to keep this kid friendly. Uh, so anyway, yeah, it's um. I lost my train of thought when you said throw money at the hole. Um, so, way <laughs> down uh, in the hole. <laughs> like you said, like you said, um, I, I guess, I, I mean, look, we're, we were still both disappointed to see the Yankees not go after guys like Corbin and Harper and Machado in the offseason. But like you said, I guess I can get behind the idea of, of concern of a contract that long, I guess. But, you know the Yankee. When it comes to the Yankees, money is your biggest strength that separates you from the rest of the league. So, if you're not going after long-term contracts because of your confidence to develop long-term success from within, 
Well, then, then you save that strength for times like these when you need to bring on a guy for a year or two and, and shell out some of that money to complete your roster. This just seemed like the most obvious obvious situation where Keiko would have been a clear fit and I'm yeah I I was at a loss for words when I saw that the Braves swooped in and then even more at a loss for words when I heard Cashman's explanation that they basically just gave him this offer and and held strong even when an extra million five two million could have got it done it's 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 baffling yeah, uh, the Yankees should never lose out on a free agent that's taking a one-year deal or, I guess, in the middle of the year, a half-a-year deal where when it's a position of need. That's just unacceptable because they have more money than every team in the league. They charge more money than every team in the league except for the Cubs, who also play cheapo and in getting Kimbrell. I hope they lose that friggin' division by one game, just, just one game, just so they know. <laughs> that they cost themselves. But anyway, um, so yeah, that's that. And... I mean, it, and it really puts a damper on things because we should be getting excited about Stanton and Judge coming back because Stanton's playing today in Tampa, I believe, right, with the Tarpons? Oh, yeah, he's already hit another home run off the batter's eye. Oh, nice. That's, that's good news. Yeah, so he's got, what, four home runs in three rehab games or something like that? Yeah, so if you take Gardner and, and um, Morales out of the lineup and put in – Judge and Stanton, maybe you can score enough runs to overcome this shoddy rotation. Yeah, I've look, I'm excited for Judge and Stanton to come back, not just because of what they bring to the table, but what they'll be taking off the table in return. I mean, Gardner, you mentioned Gardner, he's cle- clearly being overused because of all the Why, injuries. Wait. Hold, I, I'm sorry. Why was he playing both ends of that doubleheader? <laughs> uh, they're just going to play him until he falls apart. It's unreal. They played him in both ends of the doubleheader. He didn't get any innings off. Yeah. Well, his WRC plus the last twenty games is about a. It's a somewhere between Four? a fifty. <laughs> no, it's. A, I, I looked earlier. I can't remember. It was either a fifty-seven or a seventy-five. One of those two. I can't remember which. Either way, both of those are not good. And it was. Uh, at, it was. It was at a one hundred and seven in May. So. Yeah, uh, you know, Judge and Stanton coming back, you, you you get Gardner some much, much needed rest. He needs to go on a, a vacation or something. And we love Gardner, but look, he's another year older. This is exactly what he went through last year, and now the decline is happening much faster because he's being used too much. So you get Gardner out of the lineup. You get Clint Frazier out of right field. And then, and oh, and, and then also, <laughs> when they both come back, you'll also take DH at bats away from Kendrys Morales, so this is a- no. Kendrys Morales will not be in the on the roster when they come back. Yeah, are you sure? Well, I, I would. Sure? I would rather have had Tyro Estrada stay up here than Morales. I mean, he's just they. They have so much more flexibility, and Tyro Estrada is a better hitter at this point. Have you seen Estrada since he got sent down? He was over fifteen when he got sent down, which I, I, maybe like this, he was bummed to shock. be what because he was in shock. <laughs> He, he goes like, from he's... leading the Yankees in OPS to getting sent down. <laughs> uh, anyway. All right, so what now else that we've that? covered all that. <laughs> Wait, I, I want it. One thing that you brought up and I, we should we should touch on is that Boone has done a very good job, and I know that they were talking about it. Um, the article came out, I think, the day after we went to the game against the Red Sox of handling the bullpen, and, and that's something, even with his losing streak, it really – has just been on player performance. So kudos to Boone for keeping the bullpen rested. And now they had the game Sunday, but 
I think they pitched one of the big guys on Tuesday, if, if I remember correctly. So they've had four full days off pretty much going into the Chicago series. So hopefully he's pretty aggressive um, and they can steal a couple wins there in Chicago before they come home for a big series against the Rays. Which hopefully will be the return of Judge and Stan. Which would yeah, be I'm surprised very nice. that he ran out there saying that, that Judge could be back next homestand. Me too. That, that, uh, I mean, at least hearing that makes me think that they're very confident that that's true. Because after last year and, yeah. and how they talked about it, or actually I should say didn't talk about it when he first got injured this year, you would assume that means that they're feeling really good about it, which is obviously a good sign. And um, and speaking of guys that have recently come back, he's obviously been having some trouble in the field, but Didi's bat seems to be fine. And now Aaron Hicks seems to have been really coming coming along. He dropped his strikeout rate by 20%. Uh, he's through. He's at, uh, I think, 20 games back now. So you split that 10 and 10. His strikeout rate in those spans have dropped 20%. And the home runs have come back, and the, obviously the numbers look a lot better. He had the huge hit in Cleveland in that win on Sunday. Then he had a um, couple home runs, one yeah, earlier in that trip. series, and then one in Toronto. So good to see those guys back and contributing. And you hope that Didi's defensive struggles are just because, um, you know, he's shaking off a little bit of rust. Yeah, I mean, the, the two yesterday, really, a good first baseman makes both of those plays, so... Well, the I, Yankees I think, haven't had a good fielding first baseman since Mark Teixeira, so. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> it's it's rough. It always makes a big difference when you have a good fielding first baseman. Which we're we're fine about because Luke Voigt's awesome. He's been great. I mean, I don't think. I, no, I don't, I don't think, What? It's been good over there. I'm not even talking about in the field. Like he, I don't really care about his numbers in the field just because. I don't feel like we talk about this enough, but we all kind of just assumed a regression from him, and he's been fantastic. He's been one of the most valuable players on the team, and that's huge. I mean, given what happened to Greg Bird, the fact that Voight hasn't regressed and he's working counts and still has that power stroke, I mean, that's that's awesome. That's that, That's been such a lift for the Yankees through all these injuries is that Voight. Can you imagine where they'd be right now if Voight had regressed the way a lot of people thought he might? Oh, they'd be screwed. Are you worried about him wanting to do the all the home run derby though? No, not really. Yeah, that doesn't I know. bother me. He's he's too big. Like it's like <laughs> that, that's his normal swing. Like he'll be fine. But no, yeah, I I mean, without Voight, because he's been the one that's the one constant um, in the lineup really. Because they've lost Sanchez, they've lost Judge, they've lost everybody. I guess you can say Torres too. Voight and Torres, yeah. Um, so that, that, that's been huge. And, and Torres has been big too. Like, you know, you, you got no sophomore slump out of him and he played a great shortstop when, um, Tulowitzki surprised everybody and got hurt for the rest of his life. Yeah, well, now he's evaluating his future. They sent him home for a little bit. To him and Dustin, I just picture him <laughs> and Dustin Pedroia, like sitting around like, what should we do? but anyway, yeah, uh, Voight's, Voight's been huge and, and that, that's really, really been uh, a key to their to their success during like that that whole West Coast run that they had, and then when Gary came back, of course, it took some pressure off, and he had a little slump mixed in there, but he's come back gangbusters since. Yeah, I mean, Sanchez is going to be going to if he continues to pace anything like this, will be will have one of the greatest offensive seasons by a catcher, and it's just been fantastic to watch, given how many people. Yeah, uh, rooting against him in the past. So this just, oh man, it's such a good feeling to see him crushing home runs. Every time he does it, it's 
uh, he's just been so easy for me to root for this season. It's and, always and, been easy for me to root for him. Yeah, surprisingly, like one of the things that we were able to hang our hats on uh, with his defensive struggles, which this year he's been really good on defense, it seemed. But I was reading an article um, saying that his framing numbers have gone down and he's one of the worst framers in the league after being one of the best. I don't really understand how you become a worse framer overnight or anything like that. Do you think this is just small sample or, or what do you, th- do you think maybe he's focused so much on his positioning that he's not focusing on the framing? Like, yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. I read that article too. And I think he's uh yeah, I think he's just so hyper-focused on not letting balls get past him that he's uh, lost a little bit of focus on, you know, keeping that glove or pulling that glove back in the strike zone. So you hope as the season goes on, he gets better at balancing the two because I believe in that article it kind of dug into more numbers and showed that pitch framing is more valuable than limiting pass uh-huh. balls. So, I mean, that which, which makes sense. I mean, you think about pass balls, you give up an extra base every now and then, but pitch framing could be the difference between the end of an at bat or a home run. So or, I, yeah, I, I could see I can see why that's I can see why the numbers would reflect something like that. But no, either way, you're right. Sanchez has been great in uh, in limiting pass balls, but it, it does seem like there's been a it's been at a cost. Yeah, that's and that's hurt Tanaka too. I think the most they were saying, and I, I mean, who knows? Because some of those, you know, they've had uh, Angel Hernandez back there and everything like that. So well, that screws hopefully- everything. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it, it evens out. They should just discount those games, just call them outliers. But anyway. <laughs> there should be a filter on fan graphs where you can, when you're calculating stats, you take out games that Angel Hernandez was behind the plate. And C.B. Buckner. Give you a much more accurate reading. But yeah. That <laughs> the Yankees were fortunate that uh, Angel Hernandez was at the Red Sox game last night, which also brings me to another point for as deflating as the Yankees' recent string of games has been it's kind of been uh i don't know how to say it's been a little more comforting to know that the red sox have been equally bad well i'm more worried about the race who also you know haven't been as on fire as they were so we're still i think neck and neck for for first right now they they seem like the legitimate threat they've been the the best team in baseball since last summer and it doesn't seem like that's going to be changing i mean even with even with their uh little down tick recently they still took three or four from boston yeah boston's not the same team as fenway this year i mean i'd love to go get healthy go up there next time we don't go there for a while right because there are two games in london are there home games um yeah so it's uh i feel like i feel like not till august and that's when you get a lot of games against boston in like a three-week span yeah, I'd love to go there fully healthy and, and just take take two or three and, and call it a day. But I think by then they might be out of it. Who knows? Yeah, uh, we'll see. I'm just talking strong because I'm upset with the Yankees. So I'm not well, <laughs> you know, just going to dump all over Boston here as I watch Game 7 with the Bruins losing two to nothing. So, yeah, well, we, anyway. hope, we hope that score holds. But um, well, we'll let you calm down. Let's talk to uh, Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, who, again, co-author of the awesome book MVP Machine, also the co-author of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, another book you and I both loved. And uh, he came on to talk about the state of baseball in terms of player development and how many players are embracing this new wave of uh, data and technology to help even already good players become great players. And it was just super, super interesting stuff. So here he is, Ben Lindbergh. 
Welcome back, everybody. We're joined now by Ben Lindbergh. He is a writer for The Ringer. He is the co-host of the Effectively Wild podcast on Fangraphs and now the co-author of The MVP Machine, which is just an awesome, awesome book looking into advanced data and how players are using technology and that data to um, become better players. Ben, thanks so much for coming on and talking about the book with us. Well, thank you very much for having me and for the kind words. Yeah, and uh, I think one of the most fascinating parts about the book is how there's not just examples of players using this data to appear out of nowhere and, and become good players. There's so many examples of players that were already good and decided to embrace what was you know, at their disposal, like Mookie Betts, J.D. Martinez, to name a couple. Are, are you surprised that there is still resistance in, in certain areas of baseball to try these new approaches when there's these established hitters trying them and becoming even better? Yeah, I mean, I think there's less and less resistance every year, and what resistance there is, I think, is primarily not related to the players, because I think the players themselves are looking around, and they're seeing their teammates change things and get better and land larger contracts, and of course, they want to know what those guys are doing and how they can get some of that, so I think that word of mouth is spreading in clubhouses, and you have a younger generation of players coming up now who are sort of steeped in stats and came up during the Moneyball era, and they're not as knee-jerk, reflexively opposed to looking at the game that way as players in the past were. And so I think there's a lot of appetite among players for how to improve. You know, there will always be some players who just aren't wired that way and don't want to know what the numbers say, and maybe that approach is more prevalent among veterans who came up in an earlier era. But I think what resistance there is maybe is still on a team level, among coaches, you know, because that's the real change here is that coaching has been disrupted, I think, in the same way that front offices were after the Moneyball movement, where in the past you had to be a player to be a coach, for the most part, to, to coach big league players. And so I think that led to some stagnant thinking where one generation of players would be taught a certain way and then they'd become coaches and then they'd pass along what they learned and that didn't really lead to a lot of change whereas now you have outsiders without that traditional playing background who are coming in and opening minds about how best to teach players someone who has such an open mind to this stuff and was really one of the focal points of the book was trevor bauer and you know one of the things i found fascinating was was the workload he put in during the offseason not just learning new things but all the throwing he did almost immediately after the season ended it was kind of unheard of for me how much throwing he really did even before spring training did did talking with him and, and understanding how much work he put in did that change your perception at all of um pitchers managing workloads and and avoiding injury or do you consider Bauer to be more of an anomaly when it comes to throwing that much and, and really not experiencing many elbow or shoulder troubles yeah he really does like to work and even this year when things aren't going quite as smoothly for him as they did last year he's still throwing I think five more pitches per start than the next highest pitch count starter on average and he feels like he can just go every fourth day he'd like to get the ball as often as possible and I think that is partly perhaps just something innate in him and of course you never know if it'll last there have been plenty of pitchers in the past who seem to be workhorses and have rubber arms who eventually did run into injury trouble and that could happen to him too but I think he has taken whatever steps that he could to minimize 
and mapped, and so he knows the forces that are applied during his delivery, and in some cases he's been able to make those more efficient to reduce the strain, and I think that's something that probably every pitcher should look into because I think there are minor adjustments that many pitchers could make that wouldn't compromise their pitching but might actually enable them to stay a little bit more healthy, and that will obviously be a big advantage for any team that is able to implement that on a a system-wide level because teams, of course, are just spending collectively billions of dollars a year on players who can't play, and that hurts players too. So that may be the next phase. We're, We're seeing some strides there already, but I don't know that anyone has cracked the code of injuries yet. And um, Bauer also provides one of the funnier parts of the book when he's talking about the velo slap, where he basically smacks himself or has someone else smack him in the face to get his velocity back up if his if his fastball is down a, a mile per hour or two during a start. Have, uh, have have you ever given any thought to maybe a velo slap being measurable? For example, if, if instead of Mike Clevenger, let's say Aaron Judge put on a blast sensor and smacked Trevor Bauer, do you think uh, the greater force would cause a greater spike in a velocity increase? I would not want to be slapped by Aaron Judge for any reason. <laughs> that seems dangerous. <laughs> but I could imagine uh, maybe a, a lesser player, a less gigantic and forceful player, perhaps that might be, uh, there might be an optimal speed and trajectory for the velo slap. I don't know. I think it's, it seems to be more about uh, disrupting some psychological process that's going on if you're kind of in your head and maybe you've lost your command a little bit and you need to just be snapped out of it. It's you know, how you see in every TV show and movie when someone's hysterical and is in shock and someone slaps them and says, get a hold of yourself. That's basically the view of slap applied to baseball. You might reach a, reach a point of diminishing returns if, uh, <laughs> right. if they're on the slap. But um, the, the Astros chapter, which I know you actually released as an excerpt the day before the book came out on, on The Ringer, um, it, it's a phenomenal piece. And, and just looking at the, how many prospects they turned into budding stars, do you think that kind of dominance makes teams reluctant to trade with them? I think it probably should at this point because they've taken advantage of so many teams at this point, whether it's with more obscure guys or with established guys. I mean, everyone from, you know, Charlie Morton and Colin McHugh and Ryan Presley all the way up to a Hall of Famer and Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole. You know, it's just they seem to find the flaws in players, the areas where they could potentially improve them with a simple tweak. You know, you should throw this pitch more, you should throw in this location more. And what really separates them, I think, because a lot of teams probably have front office people who could do that type of analysis, but what separated the Astros is their ability to persuade players to adopt those changes and to sit them down. In the book, we describe you know, several pitchers take us through how that happened, and they were all really impressed by how the Astros communicated this information with video and heat maps, and you know, they had front office analysts there to walk them through it, but they also had someone like Brett Strom as a 70-something baseball guy who is into the data and has been their pitching coach, and he's been a key to communicating this information too. So I think that's really been the secret to their success, and it'll be interesting to see whether that will be transferable to other organizations because, as we mentioned in the book, a lot of teams are trying to hire Astros personnel in order to, well, essentially steal some of these ideas in a a legal way, not a, a card way. So I think that they're churning out these prospects year after year. Even, you know, look at the, the draftees from last year. I think 
five of the six are at 11 per nine or higher. It's just they seem to know what they can improve and be able to identify identify these traits and really just maximize players' potential in, in a really impressive way. And, I mean, obviously this was kind of a big talking point this offseason, but do you think this wave of player development has affected free agency? Teams believe they can create impactful players from within rather than financially investing in, a, in an established older player. Yeah, I definitely think that's a, a big part of it. It's not the entire thing. I, I think that in some part teams have also just realized what aging curves look like and were, are less likely to pay for past production than they were in the past, but I think it does have a lot to do with development and this goes back to Branch Rickey, a pioneer of player development. He had a reputation as someone who wouldn't pay for players, and he didn't really have to because he kept generating his own. And that's what we've seen in the majors, where now for back-to-back years, the average salary has stagnated or even decreased slightly, which is unprecedented in the free agency era. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think teams are thinking we can promote prospects who won't make as much money, or we can go get the generic equivalent to the name brand free agent who's going to come at a a premium price, and we can find someone who doesn't have the track record but has some raw ability, and we can tweak something about him so that he'll replicate the performance of the more established guy at a lower price tag. So that is going to be a challenge for the Players Association to figure out how to shift more money earlier in players' careers so that they can keep getting paid, even as the old free agency structure doesn't work the way it was designed to. That's a good point. And, you know, team, teams have tried to replicate Houston's road to dominance by tanking and, and stockpiling prospects. We've seen a lot of that lately. But do you think that strategy becomes moot if they're not investing in technology and personnel to develop the players? They, they scout on draft as well? Yeah, I think it's partly that. It's partly that I think tanking itself is maybe less beneficial just for the draft picks. I mean, baseball draft picks, no matter how well you draft, it takes a while for them to to be polished, and most of them don't make it. So I don't think you can win through the draft alone. It helps to tank or enter a rebuilding phase or whatever you want to call it just so that you can sort of sell off your veterans and stockpile prospects that way. But if you're not keeping up when it comes to developing those prospects, then, yeah, it may not work out as well as you'd like and as well as it has in the past, especially because a lot of teams are adopting that approach now. So when the Astros did it and when the Cubs did it, it was still sort of new and unusual, and they could kind of take advantage of the fact that there weren't a lot of teams doing that sort of thing at the same time. Whereas now, you always have a bunch of teams that are kind of in that phase of their competitive cycle. And so I don't think you can count on coming out the other side and necessarily winning a World Series the way that the Cubs and the Astros did. And the Yankees are are one of those teams that are competing with the Astros for American League dominance, and they didn't really have to go through a tank phase to rebuild, yet they've been so guarded with their player development process and their analytics staff. Was was there any attempt to gain access to their operations when you and Travis were putting the book together? And, And where would you estimate the Yankees stand in terms of being... You know, ahead of this phase of player development like like the Astros. Obviously, we've seen them pull off a few trade heists in recent years. Gregorius, Hicks, Voigt, now Gio Urshela. Just where do you think they stand in, in, um, in developing players? Yeah, I think the Yankees are at or close to the cutting edge, and we don't delve deeply into their process in the book, partly because the Yankees are extremely tight-lipped, and you know, we did submit some interview 
requests that were all politely denied. The Yankees just don't talk about these things, and we didn't feel the need to try to, to dig in anyway because this was less of a, a team-centric book than many of the books in the Moneyball mold. This is sort of player and coach-driven, and the Astros were the big example in our book of a major league team that we profiled and devoted a, a long chapter to. So beyond that, we didn't feel the need to dig into the nitty-gritty of what the Yankees are doing, but we do point out that the Yankees have the largest player development staff in all of baseball, more than 100 people, and that's counting minor league managers and coaches and trainers and people in various you know, sports science and high-performance high departments, and the Yankees are doing all of that, and they've had a lot of success, I think, increasing velocity, developing arms. We've seen the wave of young players who've come up, and that is obviously a very scary prospect for the rest of the league when you have a team that at least has the potential to spend the way that the Yankees do, who are also doing all of this cutting-edge player development stuff. That is a really tough competition, a combination to take on, and I think that's something that sets this movement apart. When the sabermetric movement started, it was a way for low payroll teams like the A's and the Rays and the Indians to kind of get a leg up on some of the, the freer spending teams. And eventually the freer spending teams then adopted all of those innovations and it was no longer really an advantage for the small market teams. And that's what we've seen with this movement too, because the teams that were kind of ahead in the sabermetric movement were also sort of leading the charge in player development. It's not really the, the tiny teams that are sort of pacing the, the league these days. I think it's the Yankees, it's the Dodgers, it's you know the Astros to some extent. These are the teams at the vanguard of this movement. So that makes things even more difficult for teams that are trying to catch up. Although you do have teams like the Twins and the Rays who I, I think are doing a great job themselves. All right, well, there you have it. The Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, Fangraphs, and co-author of MVP Machine. That's out in stores now and on Amazon. And I encourage anyone who's interested in baseball and the future of the game to check it out. It's, it's really a great read, Ben. Uh, fantastic job on the book, and thanks so much for talking with us about it. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. All right, huge thanks again to Ben Lindbergh. Highly, highly recommend that book. I think it was, I mean, it was one of the more eye-opening baseball books that I've ever read. And, Sean, you, you hope that some of the Yankees adopt some of those strategies like Mookie Betts and J.D. Martinez using the technology, the Edgertronic cameras, and, and everything that the book talks about. It's just, I mean, to, to think that good players that good could get even better by just by opening their mind to some of that stuff is... Uh, is pretty. It was. It was a really interesting read. Well, I'm. I'm sure that Ottavino is. Uh, is. Is pitching that in the bullpen since he has his whole lab right there in. Uh, yeah, yeah. Upper, upper Manhattan, <laughs> only a couple, only a couple blocks from the stadium. Basically, when you think about it, the way our train was moving on Saturday, we probably could have walked there faster. But anyway. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He spent a lot of time pitching right into a net. We could have stopped there and been like, "Hey, let's just let us catch for you." Yeah, yeah, that's except when he throws at me, I'll probably die. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be able to judge the movement on his slider, and it would probably just hit me in uh, places I don't want to be hit, like Sanchez was in the wild card game in 2017. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, I, I, well, I mean, the, you know, the, the, everything Ben writes is awesome, you, you know, whether it be The Ringer or, or the, you know, The Only Rules It Has to Work is one of my favorite books ever. Um, 
so it, it's good to see him dive into sort of the nuance of of this new wave of like Moneyball Part Two, let's call it right the this the sort of team building and um, I would think that with all of the analytical staff that the Yankees have hired, that their players are invested in it and it's probably not an option when you come to the Yankees. And we saw Sonny Gray complain about it, um, so we know that it's being pushed on them. So. Hopefully, all the stubborn players like Sonny Gray are jettisoned, and you know we're, we're seeing the best, the best the Yankees could be. And with the players they've brought up, that seems to be true. I mean, who has come up and flopped, really? I don't know. I've, yeah, I've, right. Like they've been hitting home runs out of the park on, on almost all of these guys, and and I'm sure that the player development has um has a lot to do with that. Even though, as Ben said, the Yankees are pretty tight lipped about it, but um. You brought up that that the Gary Sanchez getting hit in the the nuts, and I don't know if you saw the replay or the uh, excerpt, or I've gotten to the point in the book yet about David Robertson getting thrown into the pool at A Rod's birthday party in two thousand nine. Oh, admission twenty seven. Yeah. No, I'm I'm at page one hundred. I think I stopped like right at exactly page one hundred. So I'm about to get to the part where um, A Rod comes back to the lineup. So I have not gotten gotcha. there yet. But that's also an interesting read. I. Hopefully we can get uh, Brian Hoke back on to talk about that book because that's been a lot of fun to read, just how dedicated Brian Cashman was to fixing what he considered to be a broken clubhouse in that offseason and basically how you know the old guard and the core four have, had made it like kind of a stale, business-like approach and they wanted people to come in and break the ice, which is a huge part of why they thought CeCe was so valuable. It's, it's, just, it's all mm-hmm. interesting stuff so far. So, yeah, hopefully we can get him on to – to talk about that but but like you said back to the writer we just talked to ben yeah everything ben writes is awesome and like he said when we talked to him i think what was super interesting about the book is that a lot of the focus was how you know moneyball was kind of about organizations philosophies and putting together good rosters and this wave is kind of like the players themselves embracing all this new data whether it be an Ottavino or trevor bauer so you know, I would assume that these franchises are getting met with a lot less resistance when they're showing these players all this information and these incredible, you know, I, you know, you, you read about these edgertronic cameras and how many thousands of frames they can take per second. And it's like, you know, how could anyone argue that that is a better way to show you what you're doing right and wrong than the naked eye of someone just because they have some decades of baseball experience? I mean, no matter how long you've been in a game, you can't see things that fast and or slow it down that much so you know a lot of these players seem to be making themselves better on their own just pitching with these cameras and through the offseason and it's I would be interested to know how many of those individual experiments won't be needed anymore in the future because you would hope all these teams would invest in all this technology so like everything could be done in-house yeah that's that would be the the thought, and, and like Ben said when we spoke to him, he would assume there's less and less resistance because people grow up knowing about this. And like, I mean, if you think about it, if you're a 10 year old Yankee fan, 13 year old Yankee fan, and you hear about what Adam Ottavino did and how he got good and read about that, then you're going to want to try that. And as soon as you have the means to do it, like, you know, you, you, you would do it. So I would think that it would be, you know, just like anything, as, as, the generation that doesn't accept it gets older and gets phased out and the generation that grew up with it, they'll, they'll be more willing to accept it. And, you know, it it seems like for the most part that the tide has already turned. 
Yeah, totally agree. So, um, so anyway, what I was going to say, yeah. um, just there was—I don't mean to spoil the book, but the, there was an article in the Post about it or Daily News. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mean to be like um, Dennis and Dumont. <laughs> an article in the Post, like the car about Bernie Williams night. But anyway, um, that apparently AJ Burnett, the, that all the Yankees were jumping in the pool, and David Robertson was a rookie and had a new suit on and didn't want to get his suit wet. And Burnett just took him and threw him in the pool and like he flipped out and was like so pissed off and they interviewed him about it. And he was like, it wasn't funny then and it's still not funny now. Oh my God, that's funny. I mean, do, I you, could... do you think David Robertson is less of a t- uh, team guy and, and less of a fun guy than, than we made him out to be? Because he was always fun on the field, but I was kind of surprised that he'd still feel that way. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's interesting. I mean, first off, I can definitely see those series of events happening because Burnett was always such a prankster with the Yankees, even though when he got on the mound, he was like laser focused and super intense. Yeah. But yeah, that, that is a little surprising. I, I hadn't, I hadn't read that excerpt cause I was like, I'm just going to read the book and get to it when I get to it. But that's, mm-hmm. that's a, uh, yeah, that's funny to hear. I don't know. Maybe there's something to the Yankees not bringing him back because people thought he was just big dull dud who couldn't take a joke. Who knows? I don't know. It's weird. I, it's always, it's funny to me when you like see people's true colors, like, when you hear the R2C2, like how Brett Gardner like pulls pranks and how he's like actually really funny, like you wouldn't get that from watching him because he's never funny on the field. Like he's always uber no, he's, serious. He's too busy throw, splitting his throwing own lip. His hel- <laughs> throwing his helmet and hit, getting himself hit, but yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, um, all right. So what, what, uh, what, we got, what do we got on tap for this week? I'm definitely looking forward to com- continuing that book now so I can get to that chapter. I think that's what I'm looking forward to. And playing some baseball with you again this this weekend. Get back on the field after a week absence. Got it. Got an early start for Father's Day. Uh, 9 a.m. at that, one. That part. part I'm not looking forward to, but the other, the playing part I am. Not. The I have a feeling up. I'll be sitting myself down on the bench. I'll make somebody else go play first base. <laughs> so I have my coffee and relax. <laughs> I'm just getting coffee and donuts there. It's better than going up and striking out ten times again like I have been, but whatever um i don't know i gotta dad and i are putting up some steps in the house and i'm uh i'm gotta fly to nashville for work next week so we'll have to work out the recording schedule but <laughs> i'm looking forward to watching the end of this game seven of the stanley cup right here and actually for I, last or two nights ago was the first time i've watched a full quarter of basketball this season oh man so i'm kind of looking, looking forward to game six but um Let's get serious. I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing Stan and Judge back in the back in the Yankee lineup. That's, oh man, that would, be, that would be so awesome. But um, yeah, I know you're not a huge basketball guy, but the playoffs have been phenomenal this year. Definitely recommend investing yourself in those last, hopefully well, two games. I hope it goes seven. It's it's not that I don't like like basketball. I just it's become so predictable with who the champion is, and I get that there's a lot of drama otherwise. But for me, it's always about the end goal and. and like that's what I like about baseball is even though there's only a couple teams now that are capable of winning, it's still up in the air of who's it going to be. But in the NBA, you have to take the best player off the best team in order for it to be an actual series, which is already going six games. So, yeah, it, you know, it's it it, it became non competitive. But I, I like basketball when it's when it's competitive. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely obviously there's more parity in the MLB playoffs, but. I mean, the MLB has a similar problem in the regular season where so many teams aren't trying that you kind of know which teams are going to be in the playoffs, save for a, a wild card team or two. But then, yes, once the playoffs start, then you, you really don't know what's going to happen. Right, but, like, yeah, 
that exactly. Like there's probably nine different teams that could theoretically win the World Series right, you know, right now. Yeah. And right. yeah, you never ever get to that point unless mm-hmm. Kevin Durant gets hurt in the finals, like which just was no, man. Obviously, the bigger concern is you hope he comes back because he's Stop a top trying to seem like you're a good person. The bigger concern <laughs> is that what's going to happen with the Knicks. Just like you were, all I am concerned up, about. You're all worked up about Big Poppy. Well, that that's serious. <laughs> I mean, we're de- so, we're definitely happy to hear he's he's stable. I mean, that's no, that was a uh, that's obviously much different than an Achilles injury. Yeah, yeah. Prayers, prayers for Big Poppy for sure. All, All right. right. Well, look, I'll let you go and get back to the Stanley Cup. And um, yeah, that's it. Um, let's hopefully get to see, watch Judge and Stanton play this week. And uh, let's take a couple wins out of Chicago and then come back and, and assert ourselves in the division against Tampa. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks again to Ben Lindbergh. And we will see everybody next week on the podcast. And have a good week.